welcome to another episode of CBR's Dynamic Duos. Uh, this episode, we're joined by Nicole Gu and Dave Baker, uh, cartoonists who have collaborated and uh, have illustrious solo careers uh, to speak of as well. Uh, last spring, Nicole put out uh, Pet Peeves. I shouldn't have blanked on the title right there as I was introducing it, but Pet Peeves. And she just won uh, Broken Frontiers 2023 Artist Award for Best Artist for it. And Dave is about to put out Mary Tyler Moorhawk, uh, a wild postmodern graphic novel full of footnotes and prose and all sorts of good stuff. So I'm so, uh, so grateful to have them joining the show. And without further ado, here are uh, Dave Baker and Nicole Goop. Thank you for having us. Yeah. So uh, Dave. Oh, yeah. Uh, go for it. You've been working on this book for quite a while now. I, I'm sure you know the exact date, but it's been a long time and a big, long process. How does it feel to be about to finally put it out? <laughs> uh, yeah, I was thinking about this the other day because I was trying to remember exactly how long it's been. I th- I've been saying it's five years. I don't, I don't know if that's true. I think I started it in 2019, I think. Um, but I'm, I'm not really sure. Um, and the fact that we're nearing completion feels like, uh, you know, I think it feels somewhat similar to like, uh, it's a, it's a mix of, uh, a near death experience and a birthday cake because this book has been, <laughs> this book has been so positively received. The, the, the energy and the kind of reviews have been so nice and everyone's really been getting what I've been trying to do. Um, and I should say that Mary Tyler Moorhawk is a half novel, half comic book, uh, project where, um, it's a action adventure story set, uh, in a near future where there's a family of globetrotting super scientists who are attempting to stop the world from ending. Uh, and that is the comic book section. And our protagonist is this Johnny Questian, Nancy Drewian archetype, uh, called Mary Tyler Moorhawk. And then interspersed in that story there are excerpts from a um a zine 100 years in the future uh called physicalist today which is a um a periodical that is produced uh, by a subculture of people who collect physical objects and comics and movies and all that kind of stuff um in a world where that's all been outlawed and we follow a journalist who's researching this tv show that he dimly remembers from his childhood uh, who's named Dave Baker, uh, and he's obsessed with a TV show that got canceled after nine episodes, and then he ends up discovering that the person who created the TV show was also named Dave Baker, and it sends him off on this strange quest. <laughs> Which is a way too long synopsis to quite, try and have to quite say. Quite a right? complex... Yeah, uh, <laughs> how... How rehearsed does that feel now that you've been able to talk about the book a little bit? I know that like when I talk about my books, the first... like. 10 times that I tell someone the story or the synopsis, it's like, uh, this one person is over here and then they go over there and then they do this thing. And yeah. So for a book as complicated as Mary Tyler Moorhawk, that must've taken some finessing, right? Yeah. I think, uh, I think I have gotten better. I've gotten better at just being comfortable with the fact that it is going to be a little bit of a, journey to communicate what it is because you know in the books that you and i make i think we we pride ourselves on making things that are kind of a little bit more brassy a little bit you know 
you can communicate it very simply of, you know, Forest Hills Bootleg Society is about a bunch of bullied teenage girls that start a bootleg hentai distribution ring in their conservative Christian boarding school. Mm -hmm. I've said that sentence, which is already probably 25 words too long, but I've said that sentence so many times. Um, And I just, there just isn't saying infinite jest meets Johnny Quest doesn't really give you an idea. It doesn't really describe what it is. And it's it's tricky when you have these books that are kind of um, trying to be on like a, a high, higher level of complexity to whittle that down to like a one sentence pitch. Like how do you do even do that, you know, to kind of encompass what the idea really is in a couple words. It's so tricky. How do you how do you pitch uh, pet peeves? And have you have you felt that it's been easier to pitch now that you've done a bunch of press for it and won awards? Thank you. Yes, um, messily usually um, it is much simpler, obviously, than Mary Tyler Moorhawk, but it um, because it has a little bit of a twist, it can be tricky. So I usually say that pet peeves is about a wannabe musician who has just graduated from music school and is trapped at a dead-end job at a bar um, and struggling to figure out the path forward to make her music career happen. happen. And um, after a night of binge drinking at the bar, she takes a, she told you it was messy. (laughs) On her walk home, she is followed home by a stray dog and that dog sort of gives her some things that she needs, the support and love that she needs, but also drags her down and gets in the way of some of her goals in the long run. And um, it's kind of their story and how that plays out. One of the themes in Pet Peeves uh, that I personally relate to, shocker, (laughs) is uh, this kind of um, economic scarcity or the, the kind of crushing mechanisms of late stage capitalism and how it prevents artistic adventurousness and how it, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the friction between the reality of existing as a person and the dream of pursuing a creative endeavor um, feels very uh, pertinent to my life. Um, and I think to a lot of people, which is one of the reasons why the book has resonated. But I was curious of like, do you think in being a cartoonist that that friction is is a necessity do you think that it is just something that is gonna always be there like <laughs> do you mm. uh yeah i mean in our society yeah kind of so i don't think i even realized how anti-capitalist the book is until i was um either well into it or or fully done with it and um that's because that stuff is so kind of ingrained into my experience as an artist and my current frustration as a working professional who is still sometimes struggling to make ends meet and um, I think for younger people it's even more visceral because how do you even break in how do you do these things how do you get started is so um, it's the first question everybody has of course Um, and so there is this tension between um, being able to just make whatever you want to make and being able to pay your bills Um, And I think you and I have both come against this a lot in terms of pitching stories, pitching ideas, pitching whatever, and then also just um, kind of the time frame that it takes to make something. There's always deadlines, there's always 
guardrails onto whatever it is that you're doing and you can't just make a thing. You always have to be considering whether it's imposed by an editor or just imposed by your bank account, you know, that you need to be doing things on a certain timeline and in a certain way. And comics being a commercial medium, um, you know, in places like France, it's considered more of an art than it is in the United States. It's very, um, very in the realm of commercial production in the United States. Um, I don't know that you can pull those things apart, um, that you can say, go and just make the thing, unless you're independently wealthy, you know, <laughs> or are being supported by a spouse or the many different ways that people do these things. Uh, there are so many working cartoonists that we know who have full-time day jobs. And I am amazed by them because I don't know how they have the energy to do both because um, it just takes forever. But you are one of them, you know, like how have you managed over the last five, 10 years to make Mary Tyler Moorhawk, make Halloween Boy, which is your book that you've been making now and have a full-time job. I don't know. Sleep, no sleep. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sleep is the enemy, man. Sleep is the enemy. You know, I mean, I think the, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think, you know, um, I think the part of it is, uh, you know, I'm, I come from a little bit of a place, place of privilege on that, right? Like I'm relatively healthy. Um, I, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. have set up my life. I've, I've had the ability to choose to set up my life in a specific way. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, not everyone comes from a place where they can do that. You know, I, I work a day job. I don't have any debt, which is a big thing. Like I've, I chose <laughs> not to go to an expensive art school, you know, um, because I, mm -hmm. I felt like that would hamstring me later on down the road. And, and that, ability to move freely without debt is that's something that I think I don't think a lot of younger artists really receive that counsel in you know because the myth of you know mm -hmm. Otis and RISD and all these other places are like it's palpable you know you want to go to NYU you want to yeah. have a network of friends that includes all the biggest and the brightest stars of the next generation but also at what cost right yeah I mean I don't know in fact, I know that I would not be a full-time artist if I had that. Um, do you think that, so I was reading MTMH the other day and, and there are certain characters in it that have sort of a similar situation of wanting to make something new and create outside the box of society, but they can only really do it because they are wealthy or have a, a background of, you know, having an income that is independent of the creative creative thing that you are trying to make? Do you think that your personal experiences played into that, you know, or your, your lack yeah. of <laughs> finance? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I kind of had not thought about that. Yeah. I, I had not thought about yeah. that from that perspective, but you know, one of the characters specifically in the future segments, Connie, uh, Connie Har mm -hmm. Harbowitz, Kurt, uh she's like um <laughs> she's like an ice cream millionaire like she started a mogul uh, yeah yeah she started a chain of of ice cream restaurants in arizona in like the 2100s or something and um and she made a lot of money off of it and then fucked off to montana and 
the book takes place in a world where there is no where there is no idea of like serialized story like the idea of story has been so context laundered and and ruined um due to the removing of physical objects um that in the future like tv doesn't really exist it's kind of just like news holograms that like you watch in a communal space and then like weird almost like tiktok videos um which quite frankly i I had even forgotten that this was a subplot in the book and then some i was reading a review (laughs) and somebody put the names of all of those fake shows you know like like, yeah one was like will i die if i fall on this (laughs) i I laughed out loud reading that review because i was like i genuinely don't remember writing this and that's that's pretty silly i would think that's funny um there's so many things in the book um that are just like one-off little things that I know you wrote and never thought about again because they're just like a a title for something that you know is like not that important in the book someone's history or a thing that they used to do or the name of a show and they are so funny and it's just this like this peppering of humor throughout the book and I know that you don't remember 90% of them (laughs) because they're just kind of like theirs and unless you're reading the book actively which I'm sure you did that for a while when you were proofreading, but not anymore, you know. I've read it so many times that I will never read it again. I will never read <laughs> yeah, it. exactly. Um, anyway, I was the one interrupting that, you about Connie. Well, I mean, uh, no, I think it, it's, you know, but that but the idea that she comes at it from a place of privilege and that, like, she's re-sculpting the system and trying to remake the system because she's not oppressed by the system is a scary mm-hmm. idea because the fact that you're removed from that oppressive lever and that that's the that's the mechanism that allows you the ability to work outside of it on one level is a beautiful thing and on the other is like yeah but if you're not feeling that you're not understanding the nuances of why it needs to change and so you're working right. in theoretics like- as the Actually. only people who have the freedom to make whatever they want and to change the system in a certain way are the people who don't need to change the system because they're not being oppressed, you know? Yeah, exactly. Which is exactly. really interesting. And I, and I think that's one of the reasons why the in in the universe of the show, or in the book, in the, the in-universe show gets canceled because Connie doesn't understand it. You know what I mean? Like, she's... Mm-hmm. A per- it's exactly the thing that we're talking about where she's like the show isn't getting enough ratings on the dishwashers that we're distributing to so we're not also for the record there are no tv sets so they come up with a workaround where everybody they distribute these television shows to uh the like the man the like digital readout manuals on the front of all of these manufactured recently manufactured uh dishwashers um right so mtmh the show is the it's the name of the book it's the name of this future show it's name is the name of a comic based on the future show like well no it's the other way around so it's, many... the, it's a comic oh it's the, the comic show first? is based on sorry yeah it's the comic sorry, show is based on yeah um so and this idea of things becoming other things um and in really weird kind of like interconnected ways, how how do you think that that, like, what does that say to you? Um, well, I think part of that is, you know, it's a commentary on the kind of, you know, it's the thing that we've talked about before of like, there's this strange 
you know, art and commerce meeting together in a, in a tension filled way where when you're selling mm-hmm. a project, uh, the people in position of power, um, they want you to not believe in your idea because they want you to give them a chunk of your idea so that if the mm-hmm. idea is successful, they will um, benefit from it. Even down to the degree of like, you know, Siegel and Schuster, they sold mm-hmm. Superman. They sold the entire idea for $138, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Jack Kirby sold all of his ideas minus like Captain Victory and like Silver Star, <laughs> you know, like he he sold everything. And I think it's a it's a moral responsibility as as artists um, that we control our ideas and we maintain um, the directionality and intentionality of those things. Um, well, and, yeah. and this is a conversation we have all the time. Um, and relates back to the pet peeve theme of how do you make true art in a capitalist system of particularly when you're starting out, but always, you know, you as a creator are trying to make work and get it seen by as many eyes as possible. But when the system that allows you to distribute and get more eyes on the thing wants to take a chunk of what you own, almost every company is trying to take some sort of piece of uh, your work because you know if I'm being kind how do they pay their bills how do they print more books how do they do PR for you and if I'm being unkind they want to benefit off you because that's the whole business business model um, so it, it's this idea of especially as a young creator do you take some bumps do you give someone a piece of your creative property to get yourself to move forward in the industry so that you can have a say in what's happening to your work later? Or do you stand your ground immediately from the get-go and possibly never sell anything to anybody and never get it seen? You know, we have some systems now that make it easier for people to do stuff on their own, like Kickstarter and crowdfunding and all those, those things, but they're not a guarantee, you know? Of course, publishing isn't a guarantee either, or regular publishing. But like, it, it's, yeah, it's a yeah. complicated system to navigate. And like, how do you make those decisions? I mean, I, I think that everybody has to make those decisions for themselves, right? Where like, I think there is a case where sometimes it's it's advantageous to give up a piece of something to move to the next level, right? Um, or to do something in a work for hire mm-hmm. system or to, you know, gain that legitimacy from an outside of anointing thing. We've both done it. I worked on Star mm-hmm. Trek, you worked on Batgirl. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. we've both benefited from those situations um, immeasurably. And it's allowed us the freedom to go do other things. Um, but I think it's scary mm-hmm. when you you know, speaking candidly, both of those things were compromises, right? Like they, they, they just inherently are a compromise. You are giving up your time, your energy, your artistic know-how, your ideas to a larger organism and hoping that you can be carried in that slipstream, which I think inarguably we both were. So it, it worked out great for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I think that there's a, there's a, a danger in that mindset where if you don't come at that with a sense of skepticism, um, you can end up having a, uh, you can end up being used by the, the, those various ancillary organisms who are definitely not in it for the best interest of the artist. 
Well, and, and the way that we both went about it, which um, was, I think, partially fortune of the opportunities that came to us and partially intentionally not giving up certain things. Um, but we both did it in a way that I think we were not giving up any of our ideas whole cloth. We were taking something that already existed and using our time and energy to make a new story out of it, but we weren't. So, I mean, other than, you know, there are creation, like I made some characters, you've made some races for Star Trek. There are elements, but it's not like, the stories are not our baby, you know, um, whole cloth that we've created that we are giving to one of these companies to own, you know? And I, I think there is a difference in personal investment you know, and, you know, the potential for what you could earn out of that thing, you know, if you created Superman, and then gave it to DC, imagine all the money they could have made on their own. But if you are telling a story about the Superman who already exists, that's not quite the same thing, you wouldn't have had ownership of that anyway. So yeah and you know, again, it comes from a place of privilege to be able to say no to certain deals, you know, we've I feel like we have both had very good fortune and that we've worked with a lot of really great publishers and people who really care. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've also had the ability to say no and, you know, say, you know what, this deal isn't for me. And it's not even Mm -hmm. always necessarily a, uh, a rights thing. Like we're talking about of the kind of creator ownership thing, which is something that I personally am very passionate about. Sometimes it's just a different perspective on the work. Like case in point, I got offered a, not, I, I wouldn't say offered. I was asked by a publisher if I would be interested in publishing Mary Tyler Moorhawk with them, but without any of the prose stuff, just as the action adventure comic. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that, 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 that just wasn't what I was trying to do with it. Like, does it make it less commercial? Does it make it harder to, you know, find an audience for? Maybe, but um I wanted to do the hard thing. I wanted to try and climb climb the face of Everest, so to speak, existentially. Well, and I, I think it also is just an entirely different book. Like the the comic sections of Mary Tyler Moorhawk are great, and they're super fun, and um, there's a good story there. But it is not the story that you're telling with the comics plus the prose. You know, it is so much more complex. It's trying to do and say so much more than just the comics on their own. And um, I think that it was the correct decision for you because even, you know, regardless of how well this book does, um, you are able to tell the story that you wanted to tell in the way that you wanted to tell it. And so by not going with that publisher and waiting, which I know, is and was hard to find the person who did want to do it the way that you wanted to do it, I I think was, you know, and this is, again, from a place of privilege, you did find that publisher. Top Shelf was excited about the book. They put it out in the way that you wanted to do it. And that's amazing. And that might not have happened, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the reason why when you said, how does it feel? When I said it feels like a near death experience because, Mm It, I, it's an exhilarating, adrenaline-filled thing to see this book that I've been working on for so long come out mm-hmm. 100% uncompromised. But mm-hmm. I have to also, in the back of my head, just always be like, this only is happening. The positives of this are only happening because of Chris Staros. Like, Chris mm-hmm. Staros 
saw what I was trying to do. If anybody doesn't know, Christaros is the publisher of Top Shelf. <laughs> Christaros <laughs> saw what I was trying to do, and he looked at it and was like, I don't know, man, that's weird, but hey, maybe Let's it'll work. It. Let's try. Let's try. <laughs> and that's, all, yeah. that's what I wanted. I wanted somebody to just be like, I don't know if this is going to work, but we can swing for the fences and see what happens. And, you know, that's that, that from the, from the, from the jump, that's, that's what I wanted to do. I was like, I, I, I want to make something that is very unique and that theoretically doesn't have all that many literary antecedents in the comic book space. There are many in the Mm -hmm. traditional prose novel space that I could point to as like, oh yeah, this is me being influenced and loving this writer or that writer David Foster Wallace and Mark Z. Danielewski specifically, <laughs> but you know what I mean. Like I, yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of DNA in that soup, and it would not have yeah. happened without without Christaros, and I I think the world of him, and I I'm just so incredibly thankful that he saw the vision of the thing that I was trying to do. Well, and I know that like a lot of this process of making the book was hard not because of the actual making of the book, but because you were making it kind of without a paddle. You know, a lot of the time when you make a book, you or people in general go and you pitch the book and you say, here's the story. And you say, this is what it's going to be. And the publisher says, okay, here's maybe some money, go make the thing. And with this book, as we've done previous times before, we did this with Tulip, instead of doing that, um, partially because, the pitch for MTMH is so complicated and kind of hard to see, uh, have a vision for if you're not looking at literally what it is. You are making the book without the guarantee of it's going to get published, you know? And so you were kind of doing the thing, just hoping on a, a women of prayer, a wish on a prayer, like hopefully someone will publish this. For a while, you know, and yeah. I, I know that that is so did you, kind though. of. So did, so did you. That's what you did with Pet Peeves, no? I did technically do that with Pet Peeves. <laughs> but the difference with Pet Peeves is that I started that book as a personal exercise that was never or never intended to actually be published or possibly not be published, depending on how I felt when I was done with it. So I was fully prepared for not publishing it and I was okay with that and I think that's an important difference is that I was doing it because I had been drawing Shadow of the Batgirl and Everyone is Tulip at the same time for like two years and I just wanted to do something different and for myself with no deadlines and no timelines and um, also to try writing a longer form thing on my own and so I didn't know if it was going to work out if the story was going to work out, if the book was going to work out, any of that stuff. And so the stakes were much lower for that. And I think it did work out and Avery Hill wanted to publish it and they were my first choice. So that was incredible. <laughs> um, and they got and out there. It seems like they've been a really good partner for you too. Like the book feels like it fits in their line. Ricky has mm-hmm. been really good to work with from what yeah. I understand, you know. Yeah, they've been great. And since they are kind of a smaller publisher, they have the ability to pay more attention to all of their books. Because I think they do three books a season, something like that. Um, And so they've been able to focus a little more 
which, you know, sometimes you think, oh, I, I want to be at the big publishers. I want to be at the big names. Um, it's going to mean more if I'm at Simon & Schuster, which we are technically. <laughs> but while that's great and you get to say, hey, I was published by Simon & Schuster or Dark Horse or et cetera, et cetera. Um, sometimes working at the smaller publishers is a much better personal experience and can be better for the books in the long run because because their attention isn't going 500 different ways at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I think and I've I, definitely experienced that with Top Shelf as well, where, you know, I think Top Shelf publishes mm -hmm. like 15 books a year, 14, 12, something like that. And, yeah. um, you know, the, the amount of spotlight that's been on my book is significantly more than if it was at, you know, I don't know, insert major publisher here, where it would be one book out of X, you know, I don't even know, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, yeah. It, yeah. You're not fighting for space as much at a smaller publisher. Um, yeah. And the nice thing about Top Shelf and also Avery Hill, I think, is that they are small, but they're well-respected. So Top Shelf is known as, you know, the art book, the kind of like indie art book place. And people like and respect the books that come out of there, mainly because Chris has good taste and choose as well, you know, and has for the last, I don't know, 20 years, 30 years, how long has he been doing this? <laughs> yeah, a long time. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's been in the scene for a minute, right? I mean, he's the person who, who, you know, picked blankets and was like, yeah, this book, let's mm -hmm. do it. You know, and that was yeah. for me specifically, you know, blankets and clumsy and every girl is the end of the world for me. Um, you know, that those, those books really made a huge impact on me. Um, on a lot and, of people, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and so now to have, uh, you know, to have my book standing shoulder to shoulder with them is kind of kind of I don't know I don't I don't know how to put it into words because I I, I kind of can't process it you know what I mean mm -hmm. like it's a it's like a yeah. oh this is it's you know it's it's interesting it's something I don't think I would have anticipated when we started making stuff together is. You know, all I, I've told you this before, but like all I really wanted was just to be a guy in the scene, right? I just wanted to be, you know, there's a really famous photo of Jack Kirby's like 93rd birthday or something at San Diego Comic-Con. And in the background is Frank Miller and uh, fucking uh, Howard Chaikin and they're like smoking cigars and talking or whatever. And like, that's all I wanted. I just wanted to be a guy in a hotel room at a cartoonist's birthday. Or like if you took a photo of a convention floor in 20 years there would be a footnote in the like the unofficial history of the twenty tens. Oh yeah, that Davy Bakes guy, he was there. <laughs> and like it, the the thing that's so crazy to me about what we've both accomplished, both separately and together, is that that is unequivocally true now. Like it's yeah, I'm I'm, I'm not saying without that, the books. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You, we just have we've just shown up at enough conventions that there's going to be some photos of us. <laughs> yeah. But I think now that the interesting thing is like there's an existential heat death that comes with that where it's like, what is the evolution of the dream when the dream is dead because mm -hmm. you've conquered the dream? You know, what yeah, what is the next, the next what's the next mountain? What's the next, mm -hmm. um, you know, and and I uh, there's a peace that comes from that internally. And there's also a restlessness that's a different mm -hmm. type of restlessness because for a long time 
you told yourself, oh, I'll be happy when X or Y happens. And then it happens and you're still not happy, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is an overstatement. I think I'm a pretty happy person, but you know what I mean? It's that existential, the quest of the artist, right? You know? Mm-hmm. Next step, toys. Um, oh, wait, that's already happening. <laughs> ah, that's right. Pre-order those Halloween boy toys <laughs> now, baby. BigBadToyStore.com. Yeah. Um, (laughs) let's let's segue in topic just a little bit i have a question for you um my question is i make things you make Mm -hmm. things and then we make Mm -hmm. things together that's three Mm -hmm. different kind of buckets um do you see those three things as completely disparate do you see them as three interlocking circles where they're almost a venn diagram where the center is the largest how do you how do you perceive Mm -hmm. the body of work that we've generated together and separately? Oh, that's kind of a complicated question. Um, and I think it's funny because so much of the time, you know, we, we I come up against this a lot when we're at conventions and you will step away from the table and someone will walk up to the table and be like, is this your work? And I'm kind of like, yes, it's my work. When literally half of it is not my work, <laughs> you know? And I think I say like, you know, everything on the table is either me or my partner or both of us. Um, and so I, I think there's a, a part of my head that says all of it is us. Like we are a unit, we do the thing together. And then there's another part that's like, no, we do our stuff that we make together. And then you have all of this beautiful work that you make on your own or with other people. And then I have work that I make on my own or with other people. And so those things are separate. But for me, because I basically started making comics when we started working together, everything that I make is uh, influenced by or referential to the work that we make together. So um, I think that's a little bit more true for me than it is for you. Because you had at least 10 years of comics making on me before we started working together. And so you had a really kind of specific um, voice and um, state of mind. I don't know, things that you were saying with your work before we started working together. And it's not that I don't think that I've influenced that. It's that I just think that you had kind of a more stable ground to build on top of, whereas my building together and separate with you has happened simultaneously so it's more influenced by itself yeah i can see that i can see that i think that there is i think that there is a an overlap though of probably because this is how we function as human beings like there's just a lot of stuff that we're both interested in so Mm -hmm. the the stuff that we are commonly interested in I feel like there's a pretty solid through line. Even in the stuff that I'm making solo, I still feel like it relates to the themes that you and I often work in. Um, yeah. Just because we're interested true. in a lot of, in the same things. That being said... I would I, say... I, oh, go ahead. I was I just going to say... say that I, like, <laughs> <laughs> no! <laughs> I would say that genre-wise, you have a more expansive range than, so while you're dealing with the same themes, they are kind of couched in more various genres 
and styles than um, styles in terms of storytelling, not in terms of art, that then what my range is, I guess, because I'm not always, but like fairly set in the like slice of life, real grounded story realm, yeah. whereas yours is more varied. Yeah, I think that that's probably true. I think emotionally, though, I look at everything that you're making, either with me or without me, as the same thing that I'm doing to a certain degree. Because even though Halloween Boy is about a guy who lives on a floating skull-shaped island and rides a dinosaur, <laughs> it's really just about being lonely. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's just, it's yeah. it's it's the same thing that I would write for you normally, where you know the patented Nikki G young girl with hair blowing in her wind staring out over the twinkling city lights scene that's in every one of our books i've written mm -hmm. like three of those for myself in halloween boy it's just he's standing on the edge of hades island and his mullet is blowing in the wind and yeah, you uh, had to give says, him flowy hair <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah i had to literally grow his mullet longer so i could do the blowy and the blowy mullet in the wind <laughs> yeah 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 uh, there's a good paper there to be written about uh the amount of uh, lock, the lengths of locks that we both include as stylistic devices in our books. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of um, our work versus your work or with your work, there's been this interesting progression, I think, in the things that we have made leading up to MTMH, which I, I think that we both, I guess we've talked about this a lot of, the kind of frustration with comics as a creator in how quickly uh, someone can read a comic and how long it takes to make a comic. And so, you know, we've kind of been on this progression of developing how to extend the reading experience. And it started with Fuck Off Squad, where we were adding all these captions and little tidbits about our characters. And then it kind of graduated to Forest Hills, where we have many, many captions and also these little um, kind of aside paragraphs or essays about the girls and what their lives were like before they got to the school or about their left socks or whatever it is to, you know, kind of the um, uh, Charizard of MCMH of comics and prose with um, footnotes through everything. Like some of the pages of prose, the footnotes take up as much space as the the essay part does <laughs> and um you want to talk about like how important it was for you to kind of get more story out of the story and and why you spent so much time putting in so many of these little details and asides and life stories and background information on almost every character in the book the the root emotion of that comes from when we got nominated for an Eisner for Everyone is Tulip, and it was very well received. It was a very positive mm -hmm. experience. It was the culmination of a dream, right? I walk around mm -hmm. every day with an Eisner nominee award sticker that they give you at the San Diego convention to put on books to tell people that your book is nominated in my wallet every day. But the mm -hmm. one thing everybody kept saying was like, yeah. oh, my God, I love the book. I love the book, but I read it in 15 minutes. I read the book in 15 minutes. I loved it so much. And I think mm -hmm. the note behind that note As was... As a compliment. 
too. Yeah. 100%. It's a compliment. 100%. Um, but the note behind Reddit it is like, you know, it was sitting, oh, cause I liked it so read much. In sitting, read in one sitting. It was effortless. I liked consuming it and therefore it went down smooth. But when you spend, I mean, how long did we work on that book? Three years? Like when you, yeah, when you like spend, that. That, when you spend that long working on a book, you want it to be an experience that lives with somebody for a little bit longer than 15 minutes. You know, I mean, maybe that's selfish, but I, I feel like it's, it's, it's not asking that much. And Mm -hmm. so when I started the process of figuring out what my next solo thing was going to be, I wanted, that was one of the root things was like, I want to make something that sticks with you that requires, you know, and it it was a little bit of a gradual incline of like, like you're talking about with forest Hills, the forest Hills experience was very much the same. I want to make sure that it doesn't take you 15 minutes to read. So we're going to put all these captions and it went over really well. A lot of people said it was their favorite part of it, but I wanted to take it like even further and have it be just this maximalist thing where low key, I was going to just write a novel. Like I was Mm -hmm. going to write a novel and then there was going to be comics as well. And it was going to be everything that I love. And it would, you know, hopefully find an audience of threes of people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I, but I think the component of that too is like, you know, really, you know, I had, I had read David Foster Wallace's essays forever ago, but I went back and I really got obsessed with him. I, I read Infinite Jest and A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again and Consider the Lobster and a bunch of his other essays. And I I even read the, a biography on him called Every Love Story is a Ghost Story by D.T. Max. And um, the way that he uses, if anybody doesn't know, he's a very famous novelist from the 90s who wrote a a novel called Infinite Jest. The high concept of the novel is that there's a videotape that uh, has a movie on it named Infinite Jest. And the movie is so fun to watch. It's so addicting to watch that you die. You just sit there and watch it until you starve to death. And the the book is anarchic and uh, complicated and follows a sprawling cast of characters, um, many of whom have addictions, one of whom is a, a semi-professional tennis player um and the book is told in this way where it fractures the picture plane you are reading a paragraph and then there'll be a footnote and the footnote will lead you to the back of the book where there'll be all of this ancillary information and all these strange asides uh, you know and i i thought oh that's such an interesting way of replicating comics's kind of the dual perceptive nature of the comic book medium where it's an image that sustains separated by a gutter and then another image that sustains and your mind takes those two disparate things and with that space in the middle solders them together into information that is a continuous thing it's this kind of like real strange dummy version of the persistence of vision that happens when you watch 24 frames uh in a movie flash by your eyes right and it Mm -hmm. appears as one thing and when a comic Mm -hmm. is really working those two sustaining or three sustaining or 400 sustaining images separated <laughs> by gutters get melded into something bigger. And yeah. the idea of taking that Wallace idea of replicating a fractured thought, you know, of like these discursive asides and putting them on the same picture plane together felt novel, no pun intended. It felt um, <laughs> like I could, like I could make the comics sections feel like a novel and the novel sections feel like a comic. Um, yeah. 
and uh you know that was the goal did it succeed i don't know <laughs> well, and it's, it's a risk because you know the thing that i've been saying about this book is that you know we haven't known how it was going to do because is it too no- novel is it too prose for the comics people and is it too comics for the prose people like how is this going to be uh received it is a risk and but i think that it is a risk worth taking you know and, and if we are to push the medium forward we got to try doing things like this combining mediums changing mediums you know and i think you know whether again whether it is quote unquote successful or not in terms of sales i think that it is successful as an experiment as a novel as a story you know yeah but i also have a uh... really really important question but say your thing first and then i have a really important question (laughs) uh i mean one of the things that you know you hit on there was you know this idea one of the other primary influences of the book is this novel called house of leaves which is written by mark z danielewski which is a novel about a house that is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside and he also uses footnotes and graphic design and um, laying out prose in a way that is very unconventional and experimental and almost confrontationally experimental. And um, I, I read that book on an airplane after we were coming back from some convention, maybe like C2E2 or something. And I was sitting there just like laughing the whole time because he is making comics. He just doesn't know it. He's mm-hmm. using words to fracture the picture plane and all of yeah. that stuff kind of came together in this big soup where I was, you know, really obsessed with both of those novels. I was obsessed with um, the movie Buckaroo Banzai written by Earl Mac Rausch um, and, and kind of just like all of that stuff congealed into like, I'm going to do the thing that if I found it, I would think it is the weirdest, coolest, strangest thing ever made. And I have no idea if there's going to be anyone else that'll read this. <laughs> But at the very least, I'll be able to look at it and be like, man, I really did it. Really well, did good it. or bad, it makes an impact because it feels different, right? That's the thing that sticks with us is the thing that is new, the thing that is different, the thing that is using the formative qualities of a thing to change your perspective, right? That's the goal, right? That's the goal. <laughs> whether Whether the success or failure of that, I don't think that's up to me to decide yeah. because to me – it is a success in that I finished it and it is done. And it was <laughs> experiment. Uh, you made the book. I, hey, you have a copy of the book at your house right now. Look at that. Amazing. Look at that. Look how, oh, look how chunky that dude is. It's huge. <laughs> yeah. I know. Um, so my, my really super important question that I think maybe only you will get <laughs> is, do you think that Infinite Jest was inspired by that one episode of The Next Generation where everyone gets obsessed with the video game that gives them pleasure mm. <laughs> and mm. they stop doing everything else. They stop feeding themselves. They stop running the ship. They stop doing <laughs> anything. And Wesley is the only one who's not super turned on by this game. And has uh, to save hey. the, the crew. A, I, I know it wasn't. But B, I'm... I, <laughs> If memory serves, Wallace was a Next Generation fan. He loved he loved uh, David Lynch and specifically Twin Peaks, and he loved Next mm-hmm. Generation. So it's not 
it's not out of the realm of possibility that it could be like a it, weird. It could be. I yeah, think it could be. my head canon is going to be that it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know that he worked on it for for years. So I'd be, yeah. I'd be curious when. Let me just look up when it when the actual pub date was. Timeline wise. Um, yeah, because this is a good. This is a good. Uh, so it got published in '96. So that episode definitely existed at that point. Totally. Uh, but the, when did he start writing it? And did it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's also like <laughs> it's also something of a false comparison because the high concept of that book sounds very commercial, and it's not really what the book's no. about. <laughs> like it is, yeah. but it is. But, it is. but I think you could draw. Could have been a seed. Yeah, could have been a seed. Could have been a seed. You know, yeah. uh, and I think you can draw a pretty, straight, <laughs> a pretty straight parallel between some of the stuff he does in, just on a humor front in Infinite Jest and some of the humor in in my book. I I'm I'm very influenced by his um, year of the adult of the year of the depends adult undergarment mechanic mm-hmm. in the in the book. Mm-hmm. There's a really really mechanic where all of the it's we live so far into the late stage capitalism that they don't even have names for years anymore numerical numbers for years don't exist and every year is named after a product that a corporation has purchased uh mm-hmm. they purchased the right to name it that from the government i guess um yeah and one of the main years is the year of the adult of the depends adult undergarment uh which is a yeah very, you can feel a lot of that dystopian sci-fi corporation anti-capitalist stuff kind of throughout specifically the prose stuff of mpmh yeah i mean i I, hot take capitalism not so hot sometimes you know Mm -hmm. uh but also please go pre-order my book it's available for purchase now (laughs) there's no no other way i'm doing this yeah february 13th mary tyler moorhawk available wherever books are sold <laughs> buy it for your sweetheart for valentine's day i know isn't that so funny that it's like <laughs> this this like super bleak me, you know mania filled meditation on the futility of art uh and and the symbiotic relationship between the art and the artist and it's like hey honey i got this for you for fucking valentine's day <laughs> hope you like it isn't it romantic isn't it romantic? You want to want to give me a smooch? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I I'm just so thrilled that it's done. I'm thrilled that it's out. I'm thrilled that it exists. And uh, you know, it's another book to put on the shelf now. You know. Yeah, you've got quite the shelf now. So do you, friend. So do you. <laughs> Getting there. Yeah. Well, speaking yeah. of your guys's extensive shelves. What are you guys working on now? Any uh, any new projects in the works? I know you've got a Halloween boy ongoing, Dave. Any uh, any other things you can tease mm-hmm. for for fans and readers out there? Uh, we are working on another book, uh, a joint mm-hmm. book. Um, it's all written, and uh, most of the artwork is completed, and it has been signed up to a publisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, so hopefully there will be an announcement soon also if you listen to other interviews with us we probably have talked about it before but i think now because we're actually like in talks to with this publisher we shouldn't say so they have like a actual thing to announce but 
Yes. We'll just Nicole say Hyatt. that um, if you like Fuck Off Squad and Forest Hills, you will probably like this as well. Along the same vein. Yes. Um, and then I also have another very large book that I am working on, which I think it's announced like next week, but I can't talk about it until next week. So. <laughs> oh man, our timing's uh, either perfect or, or awful, but uh, either way, something to look forward to to the <laughs> announcement. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Keep an eye well, out. Uh, well, now I've got to look forward to you guys doing like the infinite jest next generation star star jest adaptation picard, <laughs> it's card playing dude it's, 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 next, yeah, it's just like a yeah 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 a wheelchair assassin. yeah 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 i'm trying to think of who would you know be, how they I do mean, I you know how they do those uh like star trek rewatch podcasts where they do like an episode for <laughs> maybe we should do that yeah. with infinite jest <laughs> Don't don't fuck with me, Nick. I will. I will. It's that, we, it's we will that, like you've read it and I haven't. <laughs> yeah, I I think that would sound super fun. I don't know that you'll love it. It's really dense, but to me, I loved yeah. it. I was like, this is this is fuck amazing. To do because it will take me forever to read it. <laughs> yeah. When uh, when Jason Siegel played David Foster Wallace in the movie adaptation of End of the Tour, that is what he did. He went to really. I he went to a store, a bookstore, bought Infinite Jest, and on as he was checking out, the clerk, um, you know, rang him up and was like, "Oh, is this your first time reading Infinite Jest?" And he goes, "Yeah, it's actually for research. I'm gonna be playing uh, David Foster Wallace in a movie." And the <laughs> he he's told the story before on late night, so late night appearances. So this is not me spoiling anything or uh, taking someone else's story. But the way Jason Siegel described it is it was like something from a movie where the clerk and the guy next to him looked at each other and the clerk goes, book club? And the other guy goes, book club. And they met <laughs> every week and they read a hundred pages a week and they they talked about it from front to back. Yeah. Damn. Very cute. It was pretty it's pretty pretty charming and also made me extremely jealous. I want to go hang out with Jason Siegel and read Infinite Jest and bullshit about it. <laughs> it great. Don't we all? Maybe. Kind of. Mm, I don't, I don't <laughs> judging by how many copies of that book are unread, probably not. But, you know, yeah. I, I love it. I think it's great. Well, uh, well, if you guys put that podcast together, let me know. I'll be happy to, uh, to listen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. into it, man. I'm into it. Yeah, let's do it. Start a newsletter. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, gosh, I'll uh, I'll stop recording here. But thank you both so much for joining us today, and uh, can't wait for uh, the new book announcements and Mary Tyler Moorhawk coming out on the thirteenth. And thank you both so much. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. For having us. <laughs>